Go ahead and turn to 2 Chronicles 33. We'll be between there and 2 Kings chapter 21. So you might just kind of keep a thumb somewhere or use that uh, marker in your Bible to, to make sure you can kind of go in between those two chapters. We've got about two or three more weeks in this study. Uh, tonight we're going to be looking at King Manasseh, and I've entitled this study The Prodigal King. Now, my kids, their absolute favorite Disney movie is not new. It's actually about 45 years old. It's older than I am. It's the original animated Robin Hood. I don't know if you remember this one. And my girls, who just turned 13, they still love to watch it. And, and I might too. That's not really something I want to admit right now, but I might enjoy it at some level. And if you're familiar, you know that one of the chief characters in Robin Hood is, of course, Prince John. And King Richard is off crusading, and so it's Prince John who is ruling England. And the animated movie portrays John as sort of a cold-hearted, greedy doofus. This king who sucks his thumb and, and cries out for his mommy all the time. And, and I don't know if there was ever an actual Robin Hood, a, an honorable thief who stole from the rich and gave to the poor, but, but there was an actual King John. And, and he was the king of England who signed and ratified one of the most important documents in the history of Western civilization, the Magna Carta. He did this in 1215. And one would think that, that, that the king who signed the Magna Carta would be some exemplary figure full of nobility and justice, but that is absolutely not true of King John. One history book summarized the entire life of King John with these words, that he was a very bad king who did one good thing. A very bad king who did one good thing. What was the good thing? Well, he signed the Magna Carta, which the Magna Carta established for the first time the principle that everybody, including the king, was subject to the law. He was forced to sign it, if you know your history. The, the English nobles, they were about to sack London. They were about to overthrow the monarch, and so they forced his hand to sign it. And the Magna Carta, it established much of our basis of justice, of our rule of law. It heavily influenced what would become our Declaration of Independence. A very bad king who did one good thing. And I tell that story about King John because that would also summarize Judah's king Manasseh. He was a very bad king, but he did one good thing. We'll see what that one good thing was here in a few minutes, but first some background to Manasseh's life. Manasseh had a wicked grandfather named King Ahaz, but he also had an incredibly righteous father, King Hezekiah. And the timelines tell us that Manasseh would have been born about three years into the additional 15 years that God had given to King Hezekiah. You remember the Lord told Hezekiah that he was going to die, but Hezekiah prayed to live, and so God in his grace granted Hezekiah more time. And it was during those years that Manasseh was born. Perhaps Hezekiah wouldn't have prayed for more years had he known how Manasseh was going to turn out. But nonetheless, Manasseh, he would have the longest reign of any king in Judah's history. Fifty-five years he would spend on the throne. And this long reign of this wicked king, it raises a challenging question. Why would God allow Judah 
Why would God allow his people, his chosen people from, from which would come the Messiah, why would he allow Judah to suffer 55 years of the reign of wicked King Manasseh? Just imagine if you'd been alive for most of your life, perhaps all of your life, all you would know would be the wickedness of this king. Why does God allow that? Well, the answer seems to lie in something that the prophet Isaiah had already said. Uh, Isaiah in Jerusalem, speaking to Manasseh's father, speaking to Hezekiah, answering this question. The question was, how will we know, God, that, that, that you are judging the nation? The answer, Isaiah said, is that God will give you wicked rulers. God will give you wicked rulers. So written all over Judah for these 55 years is this sign that God is judging this people. God is bringing an end to this reign of earthly kings. So let's get into the outline and the text for tonight. We'll be looking at Manasseh's depravity, Manasseh's captivity, and then Manasseh's humility. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. Let's go ahead and just read 2 Chronicles 33, verses 1 through 10. That's how it starts, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Verse 2. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Asheroth, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he, that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I have appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Verse 9. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. These ten verses are just a laundry list of abominations. Billy Graham preached a famous sermon on, a, on Manasseh titled, The Meanest King Who Ever Lived. And I would say that's an understatement. This, this guy is utterly wicked. He's not just mean. This is sheer wickedness. The name Manasseh means to forget. And that's exactly what he did as king. He forgot God. And perhaps it was even more willful than that. By his actions, he said, forget you, God forget you. Look at verse 2. It says how he fully embraced the abomination, the abominations of the surrounding nations. 
So, so the people the Lord had driven out of Canaan when they took the land under Joshua, Manasseh has opened the floodgates and invited those gods back in. You remember, it's kind of a moral and ethical question of some importance as to what right the children of Israel, what right did they have to kill all the Canaanites and dispossess them of their land? And, and the answer to that question is, of course, but the answer the Bible gives is that the iniquity of the Canaanites, it was so great that God came down and judged them, and he used the Israelites as his instrument of judgment. And so now God is saying about Manasseh, the king of Judah, that he is sinning like the Canaanites who God had formerly judged. That's how bad it's getting. Verse 3 speaks of him undoing the work of his father. And it again mentions the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Baal was the supreme male god of the Canaanites. Ashtoreth was their supreme female god. The Asherim were the, were the carved pole images of Ashtoreth. Baal, he was the originator, the creator, and Ashtoreth was the, the conceiver or the birther, the goddess of fertility. So it's not difficult to imagine that the worship of these gods involved gross immorality, sexual perversion, prostitution, all manner of lewd behavior. And not only did he reestablish these high places to these perverse gods, he brought these gods, as I just read, into the temple. He, he brought them into the Holy of Holies itself. So, so where the presence of God was to dwell, the, the covenant God of Israel, where he dwelt, Manasseh, he, he erected idols to these perverse false gods. He put a carved image of himself in the temple where, where God had put his own name, supplanting the authority of the Lord, replacing it with himself. The, the text speaks of his devotion to the host of heaven. The, the host of heaven were the sun, moon, stars, the constellations which, which the pagan peoples worshipped where they looked for, for signs and for direction. Manasseh looked to these things as well. He shunned the word of God, the revelation of God, the direction of God, and looked to all these bogus things. Then in verse 6, it gets even worse. We learn that he sacrificed his own children to the god Molech. Back in chapter 28, we saw that Manasseh's grandfather, King Ahaz, he had done something very, very similar. And the valley of Ben-Hinnom was the place they sacrificed their children to Molech, and, and Manasseh takes up this practice. Now, fortunately, Manasseh's grandson, Josiah, who we're going to look at here next week, he's going to put an end to this child sacrifice. He's going to put an end to this location for child sacrifice. It's going to be turned into a dump where, where the trash is going to continually burn and the Hebrew for Valley of Hinnom is Gehenim, which later became the term Gehenna in the Greek language. Gehenna then became a euphemism for hell because this valley was a perfect picture of hell, a place where people had been burned alive in unquenchable fires. Also in verse 6, this word translated witchcraft here. It's the word onane. It means to conjure or make appear, to, to practice soothsaying. So these are the fortune tellers who, who predict events by seeing visions in the clouds or, or other means that they conjure up. 
Divination means to interpret signs and omens. Sorcery is closer to what maybe we think of as, as witchcraft with potions that are made and spells that are cast and all these different things. The word medium is actually from a word that means a bottle made from animal skin. So, so, the, so the medium is an empty vessel who, whose body is available to channel other beings. So they seem to call up the ghosts of dead people. They're channeling demons as these mediums provide the vessels for such things. A, a spiritist is another term here. One who, who, who knows a familiar spirit, a demonic spirit. They have an ongoing relationship with, with this demon who's feeding them information and lies. So you might think that, that after seeing all of the child sacrifice and the witchcraft and the idolatry and, and all the rest that, that he couldn't really do much more evil than that. However, the, the parallel passage in 2 Kings 21, it tells us even a little bit more about his sin. Verse 16 says, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Beside his sin, with which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So he's having innocent people put to death, presumably for not participating in his sort of state-sponsored paganism. Tradition has it that Manasseh had Isaiah the prophet put to death. In the book of Hebrews, at the end of the chapter, it speaks of, of one of God's faithful who was sawn in two. Tradition, the Talmud, says that that was the elderly prophet Isaiah, that he put him inside of a log and had him sawn in half. So he's not just mean, he's, he's diabolical. He, he was a force that, that not only sinned himself, but he led others into sin. He gave the nation over to these different behaviors. But in spite of how offensive Manasseh's actions were, God remains merciful. He, he, he warned Manasseh and the people through the prophets that, that calamity would be brought forth upon their nation if they did not repent. Look at, look at God's appeal there in verse 10 of, of 2 Chronicles 33. It says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people. But then what's it say? They paid no attention. They paid no attention. This is sobering stuff because what do we see around us in our culture today? We, we, we see a great embrace of paganism and all sorts of other isms. A, a culture that has said to God, you know, forget you. We're done with you. We see people running to, to mediums and spiritualists and astrologers and horoscopes. You know, you know Dionne Warwick hasn't done any you know, Psychic Friends Network commercials in quite a while, but, but, but people are seeking any form of religion that doesn't involve biblical authority. We have child sacrifice, not ceremonially, of course, but since 1973, 60 million babies have been aborted in this country. We have our own gods of Molech, be it, be it pleasure or just sheer convenience. There is a shedding of innocent blood from one end of this country to another. But again, very similarly, the people pay no attention. I read a summary statement of Manasseh's reign by a commentator named Thompson. 
He said, if Manasseh had searched the scriptures for practices that would most anger the Lord and then intentionally committed them, he could not have achieved that result any more effectively than he did. If there was ever a damnable king, it's this king, Manasseh. Let's get to the next point, Manasseh's captivity. This is uh, 2 Kings 21, 10 through 16. So going back to, to 2 Kings here. And this is the Lord's rationale. It says, The Lord said by his servants, the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done these things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, Therefore says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. And in that verse I read a moment ago, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another beside the sin that he made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the rationale, the, we have three metaphors layered into this prophetic judgment from God. First is orchestral. This is the picture of the tingling ears, and this is related to the word for, for cymbals and bells. When they heard the news of the, the approaching, conquering army, it would be like a sudden clash of cymbals. It would be like a, a loud clock sounding the alarm to wake up and to wake up, but it's going to be too late for them to wake up. The second picture is a measuring line or a plumb line, like a, like a careful builder. The Lord will, will measure the nation with a plumb line. But the measurements would, would be for tearing down, not for building up. You know, everyone's familiar with, with bricklayers using the plumb lines to keep the walls straight as they built and laid their bricks, but, but nobody measures a building in order to destroy it, yet that's what God's going to do. Just as Samaria, just as the northern kingdom was destroyed, God would see to it that, that his people would be systematically dismantled as if the use of a plumb line were employed. The third word picture comes from the kitchen. God would empty the kingdom of Judah of its people just as a person wipes the water out of a dish after washing it. So this is the image of depopulating a land either by death or deportation, just leaving it empty. The word forsake in, in verse 21 and verse 14, it means to give over to judgment. God promised to never abandon his people, but he also warned that he would chasten them if they disobeyed. He warned that. It was very, very clear. If you, if you flip back just a few pages to, to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 2 Chronicles 7, verses 19 through 22, this is the Lord speaking to Solomon at the consecration of the temple. 
It says, but if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I've set before you and go serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you in this house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. It's God has said, this is the way it's going to go. And he's providing the justification for these actions as he assesses the reign of Manasseh. This is what occurs when people break the covenant. God is always faithful to bless obedience and to punish disobedience. So what you have here in 2 Kings, I should say, 21, 10 through 16, is the declaration that God is going to be faithful in his destruction of Judah. There there, there, There will be kings after Manasseh, even a faithful one, Josiah. But the fate of the nation is justifiably sealed. And so is Manasseh's. Let's look at that personal reality that deals with Manasseh. Go back to 2 Chronicles 33, verse 11. It says, Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. So this mighty, wicked king of Judah with a ring in his nose and chains on his hand and his feet, he's dragged off to a Babylonian dungeon. At this time, Babylon was a province of Assyria, who was the ruling power. And what's fascinating is this captivity is one of a number of Old Testament accounts for which there exists really excellent historical confirmation. Um, I didn't know there was such a thing as an Assyriologist, sort of an archaeologist that specializes in Assyrian history, but those exist. And Assyriologists, they found an inscription some years back that was dated from the reign of Esarhaddon. Esarhaddon was the son of Sennacherib. Sennacherib was the king who invaded Judah during the reign of Hezekiah, who was Manasseh's father. Sennacherib died in 680 B.C. Sennacherib never invaded Judah again because of what you remember happened. He lost 168,000 men the first go-around, so he wasn't going to go back. But his son, Esar Hadon, he is very, he's young, he's ambitious, and he's militaristic. And he's jonesing for another fight with Judah. And so you can see that just in his mentality and raising him up, God is preparing an instrument to chastise this wicked king Manasseh. And Esarhaddon, he came to the throne in about 680, and some years later, he would invade Judah. And the inscription that I was just talking about, the inscription that these Assyriologists have found, it says that 22 kings hearkened to him. Esarhaddon is who this is speaking of. And that means he called them and they came. And the inscription goes on to say, and one of these was Manasseh, king of Judah. Esarhaddon took Manasseh off to Babylon, and for 12 years he, he languished in this Babylonian dungeon with a ring in his nose and chains on his hands and feet. This king is now being treated like, like livestock. 
You see, this is an example of the end of the process that God uses in our lives to bring us to himself. If we belong to him, he, he, he will first speak to us softly, maybe then with more insistence, then he hems us in on every side, and with every witness to the truth that he can bring to bear, we refuse to listen, he lets us have our way, he takes his hands off us, we reap what we sow, we become a slave to our own passions and desires, and we're brought to the end of ourselves. This is Manasseh, this is what's going on. Which brings us to the last point, Manasseh's humility. Second Chronicles 33, 12. And when, when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. The Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Did you notice? He entreated his God. So he'd lost his title as king, but he hadn't lost his awareness that Yahweh was God. And there's a personal pronoun in there too. Yahweh was still his God. His God. I'm reminded of Luther's quote that Christianity is a religion of personal pronouns. When we go to the Lord, we go to him because he is with, with our sin, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? This is what's going on with Manasseh. When we rebel against our God, we become enslaved to our circumstances, to our passions, to our habits. We're shackled, we're led around like there's a hook on our nose. But if we know God, we do not lose our relationship to him. If we're truly his, we'll be awakened to our need of him. So when Manasseh hits bottom, he turns to the Lord his God, and he humbles himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and he says, Lord, I am sunk, I am beat, I've had it, I am to blame, I have sinned. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that he is, he, this is a great phrase, he esteemed himself to be the cause of it all. He esteemed himself to be the cause of it all. Isn't that a great way just describing personal responsibility? He saw he had no one else to blame. The problem was not his circumstances. It wasn't the culture in which he lived. He had every advantage, a godly father. So the problem is his own rebellious heart. He, he came to a place where he was finally willing to submit to the heart of the Lord, he humbled himself greatly, it says, before the Lord his God. And notice the second phrase in verse 13. It's translated that he, God, was moved by his entreaty. The Hebrew language actually says he was interceded for him, which is awkward and sort of untranslatable. And so it's translated this way, that he was moved by his entreaty. But the real point is that someone was standing between God and Manasseh interceding for him. Thus, God was interceded. Now, who would that be? Who was standing between the Lord and Manasseh? We have the same picture, actually, in Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, where, where uh, Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest. So not Joshua from, you know, early in the, in, in the Old Testament. This is Joshua the high priest. Zechariah sees him standing before the Lord of all the earth, and, and Satan is there accusing him. 
accusing him because Joshua is clothed in, in these filthy garments. And Satan is saying, in effect, look at Joshua. He, he is, he's filthy. He has no right to be a priest. And the text there in Zechariah 3 says, The angel of the Lord, who we know to be the, the, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, it says he intercedes for him and says, Remove the filthy garments from him, from him. See, I have taken your iniquity away from you. Put a clean turban on his head. That's the, that's the Lord Jesus interceding for Joshua. He's the one who's interceding for Manasseh. And he's the one who's interceding for us. So that we can be, as we sang just a moment ago, faultless to stand before his throne. So we can be ones who have lost all their guilty stains as the Lord takes intercession for us. And maybe you've picked up on this as we've moved through here, but I see a lot of parallels to Luke chapter 15 and the parable of the prodigal son in the life of Manasseh. He forsook his father, Manasseh did, just as the son had done in the parable that Jesus told. The son in the parable Jesus told, he, he, he sinned grievously and without regard to God's commands. He lived with the pigs Manasseh's treated like an animal as he's led off to Babylon. And then the prodigal son, he comes to his senses. Manasseh seems to have this almost epiphany as well, fully repenting. And then what do we know of the prodigal son? Well, the father received him and restored him, giving him a robe. A righteous robe. Well, the Lord has restored Manasseh. God may have to chasten because he chastens those whom he loves. He may have to discipline. He may have to bring hardship into our lives because of our rebellion. But he sees us when we trust in Jesus Christ as righteous in Jesus Christ. There's no sin that you can ever commit that will disqualify you in God's sight. You are forgiven. God never stops loving. He never stops accepting that's the reality for all those who come to him by faith in Jesus. And so Manasseh, when he prayed to the Lord, the Lord heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. He, he was restored to his place of authority. And this is what God does with us. We don't have to work our way back into good graces we don't have to prove that we're acceptable. We just keep on walking in that state of forgiveness, in that righteous acceptance. Paul says it this way. He says, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of God's grace. And so within that, we can never, ever, ever look back on the past and say that anything we have ever done disqualifies us because we're clean, we're forgiven, we're righteous in God's eyes. Then verse 13 says, Manasseh knew that the Lord was literally the God. He realized that those idols had nothing for him. There was only one God, and that is the Lord. Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, is his God. For some reason, Manasseh had to go through this process in order for him to get where God wanted him to go. It was painful, but it was productive. And he knew at the end of all these experiences, Manasseh did, that the Lord was God. Look at verse 14. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David, west of Gihon, 
in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah, and he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it the sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. So we have an outline of this restoration this repair. First, he, he rebuilt and he strengthens the wall and the, and the fortress that protected the city on the east and the southeast. This is the area that's overlooking the Kidron Valley, for those of you that maybe just went to Israel last month. And evidently, it was this place where the Assyrians had, had breached the wall, where he was taken into captivity. So, so he went back to that weak spot in the city's defenses and he reinforced it. And secondly, he rebuilt the army. He, he placed contingents of soldiers with, with, with commanders in each of the fortified cities and in these outlying districts. So he set defenses out beyond, beyond the walls of Jerusalem. He did this so he wouldn't be surprised if, a, if another attack might appear at the wall. But last and most importantly, he purged the city of idolatry. He, he took every Asherah, every Baal, and threw them out of the city. He, he wanted nothing more to do with these gods. He rebuilt the altar that he had destroyed, and, and he offered peace and thank offerings. The, the, the two offerings of Israel, which have to do with our relationship with God. The peace offering, because we've been reconciled to him. The thanksgiving offering, which grows out of our reconciliation to him. Pastor David Roper, who followed Ray Stedman and Peninsula Bible Church, he says of these measures, he says, These steps which Manasseh took are the marks of true repentance. If one is truly repentant of the sins he has committed, he will do these things. He will recognize that there are areas where he is weak, where he has fallen before, and he will rebuild those areas and strengthen them. Then he will determine to guard against surprise assaults in areas where he has been defeated previously. He will move his defenses out beyond the point of weakness. He will make no provision for the flesh, and he will deal with every vestige of idolatry in his life. Every false god will come under judgment and be cast out of the domain, and he will make Jesus Christ Lord. That's good. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8 speaks of, of fruit in keeping with repentance. So repentance isn't just sorrow over the consequences that come along with sin. Repentance is turning from sin. It's pursuing righteousness and bearing the fruit that comes with sincere contrition. Showing the signs of one who is truly going the other way and pursuing righteousness. And what, what I actually, as grievous and as heinous as Manasseh was in his sins, what we have here is an anomaly amongst the kings. We have a king who started poorly but finishes well. <laughs> we, have, we see the converse time and time and time again. Kings who you know, start out pretty good but they finish really poorly. Well, the reverse is true of Manasseh. And there are several things that I think should speak to us from this biography. I think first, we can all identify with Manasseh because God could really write Manasseh over all of our lives. 
We've all sinned willfully and grievously and in his face and at some level said, hey, forget you, God. Second, we can see something of the process that God uses to bring us to repentance. You know, first he speaks to us quietly, then with greater and greater intensity. Finally, he may have to discipline us in order to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we'll turn to him and follow him. But most important, this story speaks of the complete forgiveness of God. Manasseh was notorious in Israel. He was an evil, wicked man, and yet God reestablishes him. He's fully forgiven from what we can see in Scripture. He lived in power and authority throughout the rest of his years as king. And I told you earlier that Manasseh's name in Hebrew, what it meant was to forget. That's what Manasseh had done with God. He said, forget you to God. But ultimately, it would be the Lord who would forget. He would forget Manasseh's sins. Forgotten. That's the name that God writes over your past. Your sins are forgotten. And every time your past comes back to to haunt you and to hound you, you can say, and and maybe you say to God, you know, I've done it again, Lord. The Lord says to you, done what again? He's forgotten. You can read his words from Hebrews 10. Your sins and your lawless deeds, this is what the Lord says, I will remember no more. He forgets the past. We walk in newness of life. We walk as forgiven people. This is a glorious story. You know, I, I've, I've heard of, of sinners, I've heard of lost people who would say, you know, the Lord could never forgive me for what I've done. <laughs> Take them here. Show them this and have them deal with the grace and mercy uh, of the Lord that's expressed uh, in 2 Chronicles 33. And one might say, okay, this is such a, a massive event in the life of this king of Judah. It's not in 1 Kings 20, or excuse me, 2 Kings 21. Why is it in 2 Chronicles 33, this conversion or this repentance of Manasseh? Well, 2 Kings is predominantly focusing on the fate of Judah itself. And what would be the demise of Judah but the reign of King Manasseh? Second Chronicles is more about and more positively about the reign of each king. And so it included uh, his repentance as a closer to his life. Next week we look at Josiah, the young king who, uh, who did very much good. So let's pray and we'll be finished. Father, thank you for uh, this word that we get from, from you tonight. Thank you that We can walk out of here as people who trust in you and look to the Lord Jesus to be our Savior. We can walk out of here knowing that we are forgiven, that there's been no sin too great in our lives, but that we can walk out of here knowing that you've you've washed it clean, you've interceded for us, that we are faultless to stand before your throne. Lord, thank you for not remembering our sins. Thank you for not holding them against us. God, I pray that we would be a people who, who live our lives in light of that truth. That we walk with a, a certain freedom, that we walk with a certain confidence because we know that, that we're accepted by you. You love us. Lord, I pray for those who aren't here tonight. I pray for us as we go our separate ways. I pray that we'd be a people who would share the, the great news of your forgiveness and mercy to sinners with, with all those who need to hear it. It's in Jesus' name we pray.